Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of murder. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> How's it going? It's going pretty good. It's going pretty good. It's de- it's December now. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> are you decorating for the holidays? Or is your, is your, are your Christmas decorations inside of my office right now? They're definitely inside of your office right now, 100%. <laughs> but <laughs> we are... <laughs> we're balling on a budget. <laughs> So little things. We have a wreath in the hallway, okay, which makes the whole hallway up to the stairs to our apartment smell like pine, which is nice. Oh, it's like a real one. Mm -hmm. It's simple, but yeah, it's a real one. Okay, and then in the house, I put lights in the windows to the front of the house yesterday. So oh, precious. So you can kind of see them when you're coming home, sort of thing. Yeah, you can look up at our apartment and see we're festive, like Mariah Carey, (laughs) festive. So festive. So festive. Yeah. And I got a candle. Duh. But that's it. So far. <laughs> uh, we actually put up our tree for the first time, I think, in probably seven years or more. Wow. I know. That's surprising to me. You've never had a tree at your house the whole time I've I lived in California. I mean, I guess that's probably accurate. I feel we de- I mean, we haven't put it up since we moved and I we hadn't done it for several years mm. prior to moving. So I I'm it might be the first time in like five, at least 5 if not 7 years. But anyway, this might cute, be the ema- the emancipation name your tree Mimi and this could be the Mimi. emancipation of Mimi. <laughs> 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 the elusive uh. Chantus. <laughs> The elusive Chanteuse. All right. Tree. <laughs> what what do you have for me? What is this class action park note? Oh, it's a recommendation. I have two recommendations. One I just started watching literally today, so I didn't put it on the list, but okay. uh, they're both old, but new to me. Class Action Park is on I wanna say Amazon Prime or HBO. And okay. it is a documentary about Action Park in New Jersey. Is that the place that killed a bunch of people? Yes. Okay, okay. I've heard I've heard my favorite murder talk about that one, I think. It was wild. Um, mm-hmm. I remember <laughs> listening to the story. I was like, oh, that's northern New Jersey. I wonder if that has anything to do with anything I'd remember. And as soon as I started the documentary, I was like, oh, my God. I don't think I've been there, but I absolutely wanted to go from the commercials on TV. I remember the logo. Oh, yeah. And uh, the same guy who had it ran two ski lodges there, two ski whatever. What do you call those? Um, mountains. <laughs> two ski Mount- mountains. Ski mountains? <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, tell neither of us have, has been skiing in our life. I used to go skiing all the time. I just have no idea what they're called. Slopes. Slopes, maybe. Slopes. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Hitting the slopes. But yeah, we used to go to mm-hmm. those specific ski slopes like every year. Every year, and they just converted one, I think, into a quote-unquote water park in the um in Because all the summer. snow's melted because of global warming. Yeah, yeah. So I um, thought that was wild that I was that close to it. But yeah, totally worth it. It's a really fun documentary to watch. Very, I mean, terrible things happen to a lot of people there. <laughs> but it's presented so much in a fun, really though. fun way. <laughs> now... I was going to say, how? what was the era? Like, could, if you had oh. gone, could you be one of the people who had died? Oh, yeah. 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 Definitely. Okay. It was like, okay. I think it started probably late 70s, if I'm not, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correct from the documentary. But it definitely yeah. ran through the 80s and early 90s, for sure. The commercials was... are so 90s. <laughs> I wonder if I can find them on YouTube. There was, there's a place in uh, kind of... LA, I, oh, it's San Bernardino. The San Bernardino Mountains used to have an amusement park called Santa's Village, which I'm Ooh. pretty sure we have talked about on this show before, mm-hmm. or maybe our, our other show. Did you ever, you you wouldn't have seen that, right? Because it no. was. I want to. Oh, I want see to. If have I can seen find it. the commercial on YouTube. Oh, 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 I found the commercial. I'm going to send it to you right now. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to watch it right now, but I just, I want you to experience it. Oh, God, I can't wait. That'll be a, a fun little 
a dessert after our TV show today. I can't wait. TV show. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with me. All right. Well, the only thing I have for you is something that I just heard about probably 30 minutes ago. But did you know that there is going to be a a movie, I I think movie, called Being the Ricardos, (laughs) starring Nicole Nicole Kidman. Kidman. Yeah. The woman who I described as the perfect silent suffering actress Mm -hmm. is going to play one of the funniest women comedians of all time. Co-star to the wind, usually. This time to Desi Arnaz. Um, I don't know how, have you, what do you think about the trailer? Well, I think I, I kind of just caught the tail end of it, so I haven't seen the full trailer, but here's what I will say. Mm. There is a, a promotional image of Nicole Kidman supposedly as Lucille Ball. I would say it's more akin to Tammy Brown from season mm-hmm. one of RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm-hmm. Like, there is something very strange going on <laughs> with the eyebrows and the hair. And listen, I just, if you don't know Tammy Brown and you haven't seen oh. this trailer, just Google Google being the Ricardos, find a picture of Nicole Kidman, and then Google Tammy Brown drag queen, Tammy with an I-E, and you'll you'll see some similarities. I don't see you walking the children in nature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tammy. Never change. I love Tammy. I I understand that with these types of things that the, you know, lead actor is supposed to be you know, you want them to look like the character, but it's more yeah. important to get the performance, I guess. So, you know, she's not a spot on... There's a few moments in the trailer when they're showing, like, black and white shots where she makes, like, a certain facial Uh expression, and I'm like, oh, that's very Lucy. But I... Uh No pun intended. I love Lucy. I'm obsessed with Lucy. I used to watch... Every time there was, like, a documentary about Lucille Ball on TV, I was glued to the TV set. I don't know. I'm gonna watch it because I just need to see it, even if it's absurd, which I have a feeling it's going to be a little absurd. But I'm cur- I'm really curious. Who knows? Maybe she'll just, like, knock it out of the park. Maybe. I mean, maybe this will be, like, Oscar quality, perhaps. Or, or she'll just jump the shark, <laughs> and that'll be it. No more Nicole Kidman. Maybe. She'll have to go back to playing, like, um, a period actress locked in a closet in an <laughs> old shambly house <laughs> looking out a window. <laughs> The, well, speaking of windows, I have one more thing to share with you before we get into the episode, which mm. is I saw a trailer for a TV series, a little mini series that's, I think, on Netflix. Is this what you sent me earlier? Yes, starring Kristen Bell. It is a, it's a parody oh, okay. of, like, TV sh- or uh, movies. It is called The Woman in the House Across the-, <laughs> the Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that kills me. That cracks me up. You sent this to me. I looked at the thumbnail, so I didn't actually watch it. And I was like, this has to be a parody. This has to be a parody because it's too similar to, like, all of these movies. (laughs) Totally, totally. Uh, Yeah, I cannot wait. I love Kristen Bell, so I'm for sure going to check it out, and I hope it's great. Yeah. Speaking of great TV shows, my last thing, and this is a recommendation, but I'm sure everyone's seen it already. I think you've recommended it on this podcast before. Okay. But today, I started watching I May Destroy You on HBO. <sighs> so oh, good. So I'm only, good. like, halfway through the third episode, and I'm just overwhelmed. It's so good. It is so good. Michaela Cole is one of my favorite actors, and I love the, like, she wrote and produced all of this, which mm-hmm. is amazing. And it's based on her own, like, it's a, uh, inspired by her own experience. life experience. Yeah. And so it's, you know, really powerful in that way, too. I would love Michaela Cole to be on Wheel of Time. <laughs> I would, there are several characters that I think she could do really well. So anyway, that's just my, my dream, my wish. Mm. You know who would be good on Wheel of Time? We should save this for the other podcast. Who? I'll say it again, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> the actress that plays the um, housekeeper on season, on Bly Manor. Bly Manor housekeeper. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, gosh, what was her name? Oh, boy. But yeah, I feel like she would be a really good Aes Sedai. Like, I feel like I oh, could totally. see her as like a very restrained, keeping tight-lipped, maybe like a yellow Aja or brown Aja. Mm. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hannah. Hannah Gross. Hannah, of course. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and the actress is, I'm going to say Tanya Miller, or Tania Miller. Well, yeah, she'd be great. Anyway. <laughs> Save that yeah, for the next show. I liked her. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut this out and put it in the other episode. 
Oi. Okay, well, are you ready for the actual episode to begin? Listeners, are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> Last week, Matt and I uh, both chose to recap the episode, and neither of us researched the crime. So here we are, this episode, with a crime for you. So we're just diving into a, a crime story. So this story is, you might have heard of it, possibly. It's seems to be one of the crimes that people kind of talk about as really horrifying, but don't really, like, there. I haven't been able to find a lot of, there's some other podcasts that have, have talked about it, but there's no, like, documentaries or, or things like that. Mm. So I, I feel like it might be one of those crimes that ends up being a documentary at some point, because it's very intriguing. Mm. Okay. So Ruby Cowling, uh, who went by her middle name of Elaine, uh, was born in August 10th, 1957 in Albion, Illinois, which at the time of her birth was a town of only like 2,000 people. Um, so a pretty <laughs> pretty tiny town, at least uh, compared to what I'm familiar yeah, with, yeah. which I think Santa Barbara is a pretty tiny town and we have 90,000 people, so. Wow, really? 90,000? Yeah, I think. I think that so. surprises me. I have no idea, like, how to gauge that kind of thing. But, like, when I was little, I thought, I'm from a small town in, in Jersey, and it's really small. And I would guess... What's the name? Oh, Lodi. L-O-D-I. Kind of like California. Oh. And growing up, if you had asked me, like, how many people live in your small town, I would have been like, 600. <laughs> but that's, like, literally, <laughs> like, my high school. <laughs> but, okay, uh, well, Lodi yeah. is... Lodi is 24,000. So this town okay. is a tenth of the size of that. Woo-hoo. So... There is where Elaine met her future husband, Russell, who also went by his middle name of Keith Dardine. So Keith and Elaine Dardine. Okay. Um, Keith was born about just under a year later than Elaine. So um, again, they go by their middle names. So the rest of the story, I will be referring to them as Elaine and Keith. Okay. So small town, Keith was, uh, training to be a water treatment plant operator and, uh, was planning to work for the Rend Lake Water Conservancy District in Ena, Illinois, um, which fun story. Ina was the name of my grandparents' dog when I was a child, because she looked like a hyena, so then they named her Ina, so you would say, hi, Ina. Isn't that cute? Oh my god, that's so cute. (laughs) That is so clever. So, (laughs) Ina is another small town about an hour away from Albion, and I, okay, so I'll get to that in a second. So, uh, Keith moved there for the job at the uh, Water Conservancy District um, after he finished the training. And Elaine was still living in Albion when he first went there, but she followed pretty shortly after and um, moved along with their two-year-old son, Peter. So the town of Ina, maybe it's Ina. I didn't think to <laughs> to look that up, actually, but I'm going to go with Ina. So Ina was still a pretty rural area. Um, It's 196 square miles with a population of 460. Wow. People. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so when they moved in 1980, Ina had a population of 460 people. Mm -hmm. So really tiny. Seems like the kind of town where it would be hard not to know everybody because it's so small. But also, as I said, it's really, really um, rural, right? So 196 square miles, a population of 400 people. For comparison, again, I'm going to use Santa Barbara because that's what you're semi-familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. Um, Santa Barbara is 42 square miles. So Ina encompasses, uh, let's see, like four. (laughs) I should have done this math. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely far less densely populated, you could tell. But I imagine even with the size of it being so spread out, if they have like a school district or something in the town and they don't have Uh to go outside of town to go to it, everyone has to know each other because everyone's kids go to school together. And anyone who's not involved with the school through like that is probably involved in it through politics. Yes. So... uh Ina, the square mileage of the area, is about five times larger than Santa Barbara. Okay. So the Dardines moved there, and they lived on a trailer on land that they rented from a nearby farm. And you can find pictures of the trailer on the internet, if you so desire. Mm -hmm. So 
for both of the Dardines, they um, found their jobs in Ina. He was working at the water treatment plant. Elaine was working at an office supply store. And they were also uh, kind of involved in the community. They they sang in the church choir. He sang, apparently, lead in the church choir, according to several of the articles I read. She played the piano. And in 1987, they got pregnant again, and they planned to name their baby either Casey, if it was a girl, or Ian, if it was a boy. And because their family was growing, they started contemplating moving into a larger space and eventually ended up putting their mobile home up for sale. Okay. So Edwards County, which is the county that Ena, Illinois is in, was experiencing a pretty high crime rate at the time of this story. So in a two-year period in the county, there had been 15 homicides. Mm. Wow. Edwards County only had a population of 30,000 people. So again, comparing it to Santa Barbara, if the equivalent rate of people were killed in Santa Barbara, that would be almost 50 people in two years, when the average rate in Santa Barbara is actually three people per year. So it's it was a pretty high uh, crime rate that was happening in the area at the time, it sounds like. I mean, especially like with the population that small... Um, yeah, like that amount of people to be not only <laughs> like deceased but murdered. That's wild. Yes. So apparently, this concerned the Dardines enough that uh, apparently Keith had told his mother that he was planning to move them out of Ena, Illinois, and potentially move them back to Mount Carmel, where she lived, Keith's mother. Mm-hmm. And he told her that even if he couldn't find a job back in Mount Carmel, he was going to move his family back there because of these. Uh, these homicides that were happening in the area. One of the notable ones was a uh, young man named Thomas Odle, O-D-L-E, and he had killed his mother, his father, and his three siblings. Um, And though that case was solved and he was convicted, that was kind of the first in a series of homicides over that two-year period that would really shake up the community. So people were kind of on edge in the area. Uh, I wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. So on November 18th, Keith did not show up for work at the water treatment facility, which was notable to his colleagues because he had never failed to show up for work without calling, so this was really unusual to them. Mm. They tried calling his home several times throughout the day, but none of their calls were answered, and eventually Keith's supervisor got in touch with Keith's parents, who, uh, again, lived about 30 minutes away in Mount Carmel. And they asked them if they knew if Keith was okay uh, and why he might not have shown up to work that day. And neither of his parents knew anything. They were like, I I have no idea. That doesn't make any sense. Um, But Keith's father, uh, after getting these calls from his supervisor, ended up calling the police and speaking with them and saying that his son had failed to show up for work and nobody could reach him. And so he offered to meet the police at the Dardine's trailer with the keys so that they could see if Keith and the family were okay. When the police arrived at the Dardine's trailer, they entered and found the bodies of Elaine and their son Peter. Both had been beaten to death, her so badly that the trauma caused her to go into labor, and she gave birth to their baby girl, Casey, who was also beaten to death. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty horrific. Oh, my Um, God. (laughs) So, I mean, that is horrifying, and it just continued to get more horrifying and kind of weirder from there. So all three of their bodies were lined up in a bed and, like, tucked into the bed. And despite that they were not beaten to death in the bed, they had been, like, moved and placed there and tucked in. And um, Elaine had been bound and gagged with duct tape. And the murder weapon, which they did find in the trailer, was a baseball bat that had been given to Peter by his father, Keith, a few months earlier as a birthday present. Oh, my God. How old was the the boy? I think he was five. Oh, my God. Notably absent at the scene was Keith. Also missing was his car, which was a 1981 Red Plymouth. So, of course, the police see an entire family murdered and the father missing, and so he becomes their prime suspect. Right. And he's not at work where he belongs. And he's not at work, and his car is missing. So they're like, okay, this man killed his family, and he has fled. So a manhunt for Keith began. And 
armed police went to his mother's house in Mount Carmel to see, like, if she was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Harboring? Harboring? Yeah, if she was harboring him. But they couldn't locate him there either. So they started uh, speaking with his friends and family to kind of ask if anyone knew where Keith was or what had happened to him. And if he was likely to have committed this murder. And most everyone who knew Keith and Elaine were like, this makes absolutely no sense. Uh, His lifelong friend, whose name was Kevin Davis, stated, quote, Keith was a real stand-up guy. When they first came to me and said that they were looking for him because they thought he had murdered Elaine, I said, there is no way. That's not even a possibility. Hmm. Of course, you know, I feel like a lot of people say that in a lot of these cases. Sure. I mean... When it en- <laughs> when it does end up being true, but... Right. How? C- I mean, think about anybody out there who's done something this heinous. They have yeah. clearly fooled a lot of people in their yes. life to thinking that they are totally harmless, and, uh, yes. I mean, who wouldn't, you know, who wouldn't want to defend people who wouldn't in suspect. your life? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you exactly. seen one version of them, so. Yeah. Oh, boy. However, the next day, a group of hunters were in a wheat field, and they came across the body of Keith Dardine, which was not far from the Dardine's trailer. Keith had been shot three times, and his penis had been removed from his body. <sighs> the police discovered Keith's Red Plymouth parked outside of the police station and the county courthouse (laughs) about 10 miles away from the scene of the murders. And the interior of the car was described as, quote, splattered with blood. So you can imagine in this tiny town that this had a really big impact on the community pretty quickly because there, as I said, there had been that murder of the family committed by one of the sons earlier um, some other other kind of horrifying ones, but this one was pretty terrible. Um, people were really afraid for themselves and their families. Um, a couple of the articles that I read mentioned that people started like mounting their shotgun racks on top of their cars so that they had their guns with them at all times. And the the local school, when kids would attend like a bas- basketball game, for example, the parents all would have the kids wait inside the building and would like go to the basketball game, walk inside of the building and like escort their children out so that they were like always with their children kind of thing. So everybody was really on high alert and uh, very attuned to any threats at this point. Yeah, I mean, understandable. Yeah. What didn't help that sort of fear um, was that the police briefings on the Dardine case were kind of few and far between, and news reports often shared conflicting information. For example, some some news reports had stated that Keith had died of a head injury. Mm-hmm. Others said that he had been shot, and that was the cause of his death. Um, many news, um, news sources said that Elaine had died and given birth posthumously. Others said that she was alive when she gave birth and then was killed. So it's, it's, there's a lot of kind of uncertain information that had circulated on a lot of news channels, including one that a, the baby had been like ripped from her womb. Oh God. So this led to a lot of confusion, a lot of rumor mongering, and you can imagine this is the 1980s. So what do you think that this was likely blamed on? Oh, uh, satanic rituals? That's correct, Mm. yes. Mm. A lot of folks thought that this was part of satanic worshippers who had, you know, done, like, human sacrifice type stuff. That, I will just say right now, ends up, like, there is zero evidence for that, so. Honestly? But, of course, like, the satanic (laughs) panic thing... It's so yeah. real in my life. My dad used to have us watching Ugh. videos when we were kids that would talk yeah. about th- these types of things happening in the world around us as though they were yeah. fact. And as a kid, I legitimately believed that, like, listening to rock and roll music was indoctrin- could indoctrinate me into, like, mm-hmm. uh, satanic rituals. I remember there was totally. one he played all the time called Hell's Bells. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a lot about it, but it was very, like, scary to watch. And he made us watch it mm. on VHS, like, <laughs> at least twice a month. I feel like I watched that video. Oh, my gosh. What kind of world were we li- are we living in and were we living in? 
So the Illinois State Police ended up aiding local police in the investigation, and over 30 detectives were assigned to investigate the murders of the Dardine family. Um, and I, sorry, 30 of them were assigned to work on the case full time. So a lot of people power dedicated to solving this case. Mm-hmm. They interviewed over 100 people. They followed up on more than 1,000 tips and leads that the department received. And despite all of this, led them nowhere toward solving the case. They, you know, the police pursued kind of the typical lines of inquiry, like, did they have conflicts with anyone? But it seems like they were pretty well-liked people. Nobody seemed to know of any conflicts that they might have had with anyone. Uh, People wondered maybe it was connected to drugs, because they did find, like, a tiny bit of marijuana in the trailer, but, you know half a joint in a trailer doesn't really lead to or doesn't really uh, indicate that they are (laughs) involved in a life of drug-related crime. Thank God. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So there were no drugs or alcohol in their systems, and the autopsies ended up finding that they were all killed within an hour each each other. So it, it didn't last a long time. So at the crime scene the police were able to obtain little information about the killer or killers from the crime scene or their and or identify their motives this is where i wasn't able to get like crystal clear information on exactly what this meant but several articles referred to the crime scene as having been like cleaned up a bit mm. but they did find the bodies in the baseball bat there so it wasn't like scrubbed but it seems to have been tidied or cleaned up in some way yeah it's i mean it's never kind of like clarified what that means when i hear like state like a crime scene that looks like staged in any way i feel like which this clearly was since they were in the bed i mean i imagine that has a good deal of like destroying evidence trying to make things look a certain way cleaning up you know as best as you can yeah exactly so the back door of the trailer had been left open And there were no signs of forced entry into the trailer, which indicated that the killer or killers either had access to the trailer or were granted access in some way, like they were known to the Dardines or the people had maybe forced their way in. So there were a couple of possibilities there. Mm -hmm. The motive of the murders did not appear to be financial because in the trailer, they found a TV and a VCR uh, that were like all in plain sight. They found jewelry, cash that were laying around, and it was all untouched. Mm. So it wasn't a robbery. Um, which I feel like the the brutality of the murders would oh. also indicate that, of course. Yeah. Here, here again, this is the tricky thing because, as I said, there were a lot of conflicting news reports at the time. So sometimes you get information that is contradictory to each other. Mm. Most of the articles that I read said that Elaine had not been sexually assaulted, um, and that is that seems to be the most widely accepted truth of the matter. Okay. There were a couple that. I think sort of leaned into the satanic panic angle and sort of fabricated some stuff Mm. about her having been sexually assaulted, but I didn't find any kind of credible source that said that that was true. Yeah, yeah. So police theorized that this might have been a murder of jealousy, and maybe Keith or Elaine was having an affair, and that in a jealous rage, the person that they were having an affair with murdered the entire family. But Again, this doesn't appear to have been likely because neither Keith nor Elaine were known to be involved with anyone else in the town. And again, they pretty much interviewed everyone who knew them, it sounds like, and nobody had any indication that they were anything other than like really happy together. Yeah, I mean, that would be a overkill for that kind of yeah. re- I mean, yes. it's overkill for any I mean, reason, yeah. but I mean... yeah. So they also investigated the family's financials because, again, they were like, well, if it's if if it wasn't a robbery and it wasn't related to like adultery or or um, somebody involved with one of them, maybe it was a gambling thing. So they thought maybe Keith had gotten into some gambling debt. Uh, But again, that doesn't appear to have been the case either. And in fact, Keith was known to be really frugal. And was even, like, selling cans of soda to his work colleagues to put into a savings account for Peter's college fund. So, no evidence that gambling was related to this. And this was, like, 
payback for not settling a gambling debt. They just seem like every family. They just seem like yeah, like hundred percent that detail right there that this yeah just this poor guy yeah was just selling cans canned items yep. to help his kid out. Oh my god. Yep. Yep. Getting into some of the theories, there was a lot of fear in the town and the neighboring counties about the high murder rate, particularly because of this case of the Dardines. However, a lot of the police and like the coroner said that the fear was unwarranted because the brutality of the crime does like indicates that they weren't chosen randomly. Right. Right. Like they, the, um, state police who came in and investigated were like they they hadn't really seen this level of brutality and the entire family having been killed from like a random killer. So they they really thought that this was somebody who knew the Dardine family and targeted them specifically. The because the the Franklin County coroner was quoted as saying, "quote I believe it was a very personal, deliberate thing," and. Police experts ended up denying rumors that this was in any way connected to a satanic sacrifice, eventually. Good. So, the only theory that police came up with that would have explained the murder as random is that maybe it was a case of mistaken identity, and the Dardines weren't actually the target. Hmm. Mm, I personally think that's really unlikely, given that it's a town of 460 people. Yeah. And... And if it was mistaken identity, wouldn't you... Like, it just seems really un- implausible who, to me. Who would have gone after Keith after killing the family? Right. If, if it was exactly. mistaken identity. You know? Just to what? Right. Tidy up? Yes. Come on. Yes. So, Keith's mother, Joanne Dardine, initially theorized that maybe her son had been asked to sell drugs and had refused, um, and this was retaliation, or... She thought perhaps a, Elaine had a stalker or somebody who was really interested in her, and when she turned that person down, he murdered the family and Keith in retaliation. That, that was kind of uh, Keith's mother's theories. Okay. So, as I said, all of the interviews, tips that they got led them kind of nowhere, and eventually the Dardine family murders would become a cold case because there was no progress being made in the case. Um, Two FBI profilers were even assigned to the case to see if they could uh, kind of, again, create a profile for who might have been likely to have commit this kind of murder. But even those FBI profilers felt that this, that the way the murder happened didn't really align with their typical methods of profiling. Like it didn't indicate uh, to them like a serial killer or a, a specific motive. Like it was, it was pretty perplexing to the FBI profilers as well. Mm-hmm. But we did end up having a couple of suspects. So the first one that I'll mention, his name was Angel Materino Resendiz. Um, he was also known as Rafael Resendiz Ramirez. I will call him Ramirez from this point on. He was also known as the Railroad Killer. Ramirez was responsible for the murders of more than 23 people across the United States and Mexico. Most of them occurred near railroads because he would, like, hop trains illegally and travel around and commit a murder and then hop another train and travel around. So he was very difficult for the police to track down because he was just hopping trains and traveling all over the country. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point, he was one of the FBI's top 10 most wanted, and he eventually turned himself in in 1999. And his... Typical M.O. could have fit these murders because he was known for having killed people with blunt objects, primarily in their homes, uh, which fits with the murders of Elaine and the uh, children Peter and Casey. Most of his victims he covered with a blanket and hid them from view, which is kind of consistent with the Dardine murders. And after he would kill the person or people, he would often remain in the residence for a period of time. He would eat their food and he would go through, he would like look at their wallets and their belongings to like learn about the people that he had just killed. But this was inconsistent with the MO in the Dardine murders because none of that like looking through their belongings appears to have happened according to all of the articles that I read. Yeah, And I did look into the timeline of Ramirez's murders and this would have had to have been one of his earlier killings. Um, if I, I think if I'm remembering correctly, he had committed two murders in Mexico, and then this would have had to have been his first murder 
in the United States. And the ones before were individuals. It was like, I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was like his ex-girlfriend and the guy she was dating were the first people he killed. And so to jump from that to a different country killing a family of four seems odd. Like, it doesn't seem like a typical progression that you would expect. No. So... But the murders that he committed around that time were primarily in Texas, um, and he's not actually known to have killed anyone in Illinois until <laughs> until 12 years after the Dardines were murdered. So it, it doesn't seem to really fit that Ramirez actually killed the Dardines. Yeah. So, but he was not the only serial killer that they looked into as having been involved in the Dardines murders. So let me tell you about the second one. Tommy Lynn Sells. Do you know that name? It sounds really familiar. Yeah, he's a pre- he's pretty well known. So Tommy Lynn Sells, who was a serial killer, ultimately he was only ever convicted of one murder, but he's believed to have committed up to 22 murders, and he claims that he has killed more than 70 people. He... Also, like Ramirez, he kind of hitchhiked around, he used the train system to travel the country, and so over a 21-year period between 1978 and 1999, Tommy Lynn Sells was killing people across the United States. In 1999, um, Sells attempted to uh, kill two young girls, a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. The 13-year-old's name was Kayleen or Katie Harris. Um, He killed her and and slit the throat of the 10-year-old who was with her, Uh, but she survived and managed to get away from Tommy Sells, got to the neighbor's house, asked for help, they called the police, and she was able to identify Sells. And so this little 10-year-old is responsible for capturing this serial killer who had been killing people for more than 21 years. Wow. Which is kind of badass. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so while he was awaiting trial for the murder of Kayleen Harris, the 13-year-old, Tommy Sells began confessing to other murders. At the time of this confession, Sells was 35 years old, and he admitted to committing his first murder at the age of 15. Among the many murders that he confessed to, Tommy Sells confessed to having killed the Dardine family. Mm. And he was in kind of the general Midwest United States around the time of their murder, so it is possible. Um, In the mid-1980s, Sells was working the carnival circuit in the area, so he was actually familiar with the area of Ina, where the Dardines lived. Mm -hmm. However... His confession was somewhat inconsistent. Um, <laughs> so Sells ends up giving several different stories about the uh, about having killed the Dardines, which is kind of why people are like, mm, not sure that it's him. So he says, Tommy Sells says that part of the reason that his stories of having murdered the Dardines are inconsistent are because... By all accounts, he did have a pretty traumatic childhood, it sounds like, like a really horrific uh, physical sexual abuse childhood. Um, and he says that he has blocked out a lot of his memories uh, as a like kind of coping me- mechanism for his trauma. Mm-hmm. So he explains away the different stories he tells about the Dardine murders as a result of that. I'll let you decide if you believe that or not. Okay. So Sells claims, his kind of first story that he gave was that he met Keith at a truck stop, and um, that story would sometimes change to having met him in a pool hall. But either way, he claims that after he met Keith at this truck stop or pool hall, Keith invited Sells back to his trailer for dinner with his family. Sells claims that once he was there, Keith propositioned him for sex, or propositioned him for a threesome with his wife, Elaine. According to Sells, he says this enraged him, and he led Keith out of the trailer at gunpoint and to the location where Keith's body was later found. There, he says that he killed and mutilated Keith, and then returned to kill Elaine and Peter because, according to him, quote, rage don't have a stop button. However... In a third and different iteration of the story, Sells said that there was no sexual proposition from Keith, that he was simply in the area, that he saw the for sale sign on the Dardines trailer and saw this as an opportunity to kill people. 
He says he knocked on the door of the trailer and told Keith that he was interested in buying the property. He says he overpowered Keith, forced Keith to bind Elaine and Peter, and then at gunpoint had Peter dr- or sorry had Keith drive to the location where his body was found. He says that he then cut off Keith's penis and told him that he was going to take it back to Elaine and then shot and killed him. Wow. He then says that he returned to the trailer, raped Elaine, then killed Peter, then killed Elaine, and then the newborn, and then says he drove the red Plymouth that belonged to Keith to Benton, Illinois, and parked it outside of the police station. So these are some pretty wildly inconsistent confessions. Right. And because of their inconsistency and any lack of physical evidence that tied cells to the murder of the Dardine family, the district attorney never pursued charges against cells for the Dardine family murders. Um, However, cells was uh, convicted of the murder of Kayleen Harris and uh, was eventually executed via lethal injection. And so a lot of folks who were pretty convinced that Sells was the murderer of the Dardine family felt like this had given them closure. But it gets kind of, there's some wrinkles in this. So a week after Sells' execution, state attorney Douglas Hoffman stated that Sells remained their number one suspect for the murder of the Dardine family. So he was pretty convinced that Sells was the murderer. But many people still wonder if he actually was responsible because Sells was known to fabricate confessions and he gave incorrect details to to confessions. Most of the facts that he provided about the Dardeen murders were ones that were publicly available. Hmm. Um, So as we know, police will often hold on to some information so that they can test the validity of any people's confessions. Um, And it sounds like Sells did not hit on any of the information that the police had kind of held back. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't sound, like, (laughs) real. I mean, you know what I mean? It just doesn't sound believable to me. Well, hold your horses. Mm. So Sells, when the police would ask him questions, he would oftentimes, like, give the wrong answer and then kind of, like, blurt out a different answer, which was actually the correct answer. Hmm. For example, when uh, when investigators asked Sells what seat of the car Keith was in when he was shot, um, Sells initially indicated the incorrect seat in the car, and at first he incorrectly described the positioning of Elaine's body, but then he later corrected himself on both of those accounts and gave them the correct information. In a 2010 interview, uh, Sells specifically addressed the doubts as to whether he killed the Dardine family, and he said to the journalist that there is no physical evidence tying him to the Dardine murders only because they weren't looking for him in the first place, and so they didn't know to try to tie anything to him. Um, and it, it would have been challenging as well because he lived a, a pretty transient life, right? Mm-hmm. So Sells even, he he was kind of sold on telling the police that he committed these murders, and he even offered to the police to return to the area and kind of like lead them to missing evidence and walk them through the events of the, of, of the night. But because he was at this time on death row in Texas for the murder of Kayleen, um, state law forbade him from being removed. Uh, it forbids death row prisoners from being removed from prison, so the police couldn't Uh, have him removed to lead them to any missing evidence. Hmm. Another story that Sells provided to the police about the Dardine murders is that Keith was actually connected in some way to, like, some kind of drug trade, uh, whether it was smuggling or, you know, whatever it was, that somehow Keith was connected to drugs. And eventually, it sounds like Sells essentially implies that he was sent to kill the Dardines by these folks in this drug, I'm not even, uh, empire, I'll just say, or group, conspiracy, whatever word you want to use for that. Yeah. He was telling the police that Keith kind of either like messed up or, uh, you know, shared information with the wrong person or refused something and he was sent to kill them intentionally. Okay. But- a lot of people who kind of question whether Sell's story was accurate or not is that many of his iterations of this story are that Keith, like, invited him to dinner, 
But remember, at the time, everybody was super paranoid about everyone because of the high murder rate. And, like, they, as I said, were, like, escorting their children out of basketball games and, like, not going out after dark. And apparently, just days before the Dardine murders, a young woman had come to the Dardine's trailer and asked to use their phone, and Keith refused to open the door or let her in. So it seems very unlikely that he would meet a random stranger and say, hey, come over for dinner. Right, with my young child and my pregnant wife. Exactly. Additionally, the whole part of, like, Keith making sexual advances towards Cell seems unlikely because detectives uncovered no evidence, interviewed no one who gave any indication that Keith had any attraction to men, and Cells was known to include that kind of, like, oh, they hit on me and I got mad, that kind of information in other confessions to make his crimes appear justified, so... That doesn't really seem to hold water either. No, and also, they already, like, chased down the possibility of one of the two victims having an affair and found nothing to suggest he was having an affair with anybody. So, what, they all of a sudden decided, yeah, let's get get wild and have a threesome with a rando from the truck stop. From the truck stop. And also, I just looked up a picture of Mr. Sells. No one's banging down his door. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, That's fair. I thought the same thing. So Bill Clutter, who is a private investigator, got an interview with Tommy Sells in prison prior to his execution. During the interview, Sells stated that he had been contracted to kill the Dardines due to Keith's involvement with drugs in some way. And Sells was quoted in this interview as saying, quote, When you step in the ballpark, you better be ready to play. You bring yourself down, your wife down, even your kids. He's lucky it stopped at his family. Get the fuck out of here. Doesn't, I mean, A, fuck you, but also doesn't make sense. Like, he's lucky that he and his entire, like, what do you mean it stopped there? Like, what what could have been worse that you could have done to him beyond that? It's just, I don't, I don't get that. Right. So that, at first, sounded really ridiculous to me, but here are two things that I want to share that give just enough credibility to Sell's story that makes it still a question mark. Mm, okay. So the first thing is um, the, the Plymouth that Keith had been driving, that uh, Sells had driven and parked outside of the courthouse and police station— the that courthouse had literally just concluded a like large federal case involving massive drug conspiracy in the area. Mm-hmm. So that's a little odd. Right. But perhaps the most convincing piece of evidence that Sells might have been the killer of the Dardine family, regardless of the motive, is that Sells described to the police a set of watermelon ceramics inside of the Dardine's home, which was information that was never shared with the public. So in this interview with uh, Clutter, the man who, the licensed private investigator, this was kind of the crucial evidence to him that Sells was the killer of the Dardine family. He said, quote, for him to know that, he had to have been inside the house. I am convinced he is the Dardine killer, that one detail that he was able to give. Wow. Okay. So that's strange. Um, that is strange. Keith- and let's not forget that I think it was Keith's mom you said earlier, who when she was trying to suppose what could have happened, she did mention drugs, like maybe he had been tricked into she selling did. drugs. Totally. Yeah. So um, speaking of his mother, uh, Joanne Dardine. Uh, tried for a number of years prior to Sell's execution to meet with him so that she, because she was like, what wasn't sure whether he was actually the killer or not. And she really felt like she needed closure. closure. And she felt like if she could meet with him, she could really kind of get that sense for herself of whether he was her son's killer and, and her uh, son's family's killer. Mm-hmm. She stated, quote, if I had had a chance to talk to Tommy and he convinced me he did it, I think I could let it go, but I can't. I just can't let it go until I know for sure. However, that meeting never occurred, and by the time that Sells was executed in 2014, Joanne had become pretty convinced that he was not the killer of the Dardine family. She said, a lot of people think it's over and done with, but to me, it's not. Of course. To this day... The murder of the Dardine family remains unsolved, and the current cold cold case officer assigned to the Dardine's case said, 
you know, he had read, he had heard all the theories. Um, the files on this murder case take up 21 different four-inch binders, like, full of paperwork and information. Mm. And he's read it all. And he thinks that the severity of the crime indicates that it was either deeply personal or that the Dardines were murdered to send a message to someone else. Which, again, if there's some sort of drug conspiracy, maybe that makes sense. I don't know. Mm. Okay. Um, but who that, who else that could be remains unknown. Um, so in, to kind of wrap up this story, I, in the most recent article I read, which was in 2019, the case had been, uh, handed over to a new officer. His name was, uh, Detective Scott Burge, and, um, I emailed him and asked him because the article mentioned that they did have DNA evidence that they hoped that they would be able to test at some point to be able to, I'm assuming, rule out or confirm if Bobby Sells or Tommy Sells was the killer. Uh, So I emailed him and ended up actually getting in touch with uh, another man, Detective Captain Bobby Wallace, who is currently in charge of the Dardine investigation. And his email to me said, at this point, we are still going through the evidence when we can see if there is any evidence that may be rechecked for DNA, fingers crossed. I will add your contact. And if there are any developments, I would be more than happy to include you in any releases. So if we find out anything, sounds like Bobby Wallace will let us know. Ooh, that's awesome. And Keith's mother, Joanne Dardine, she's 80, I believe she's 81 this year. Uh, Apologies if I got that wrong. In the most recent article, there are multiple quotes from her uh, that says that she is, like, really concerned about the, A, this case never being solved, and B, like, people not knowing about the case really worries her. Mm. And so it said that she would, like, love to talk to folks about the case. And so I reached out to her Mm. and asked if she wanted to talk with us. Um, I have yet to hear back from her because I just did that, like, two days ago. Um, But if I do get... uh, hear back from her maybe we can interview her and and get some more information on the case yeah um but at this point jefferson county authorities want anyone who thinks they know anything about the 1987 murders of keith elaine peter and casey dardine to contact their office and that is the story of the dardine family homicides wow i it just feels like something that should be solvable at this point totally where we are with totally dna and and yeah um forensics and all that because how could there be nothing at such a violent crime (sighs) scene in such a rural area where i just imagine it would be really hard to not leave something behind even outside the trailer right i don't know what they collected you know yeah i mean in 1987 we didn't really have dna science for crime investigations back then and so I am, I'm not even sure that police would, like, know to, well, I mean, I guess they would, because we saw that in previous cases, but, like, collect any hair that they found at the scene, or, you know, I'm sure they would have dusted for fingerprints and all that kind of stuff. But there was probably things that they wouldn't have known to look for, because we hadn't gotten the science there yet. Mm-hmm. And, of course, with all these, like, older cases, you never know if the DNA has, like, followed the chain of custody and whether it can be like hold, held up in court if you're able to test it and who knows maybe they're trying to test against uh tommy sells right. dna maybe they're trying to uh you know see if there's evidence from the dardine family's dna in like another location that they found who knows what that evidence is but hopefully at some point they're able to get that tested and get some more information for the family and hopefully you know give some closure to joanne dardine yeah i mean i feel like with cells if he was responsible, I don't believe almost any of his stories, including the drug one. I kind yeah, of believe yeah. that he, if he is responsible, I think it was random. I think he was just yeah. on a spree. He found the yeah. for sale sign for the trailer and thought these are people who won't be for, who will be gone anyway. Maybe they won't be forgotten yeah. or or looked after. And in, they're in the middle of nowhere. It's the perfect location to commit yep. a crime and have enough time to get away and cover it up and all that. So if totally. he did it, I think that's yeah. what he did. And I think he just wanted himself to look good and kept coming up with stories to make it more interesting and make him more yeah. infamous. And then 
his final story about the drugs, I think he just, you know, figured out it was more believable. No one was buying the other, other crap. And this is yeah. believable. There was a drug bust in the area around that time. Oh, drugs, whatever. I was going to say, a lot of the articles kind of talked about that, how, like, cells would confess to things and give information just to kind of, like, get attention yeah. and, like, maybe stay delay his own shit and, you know, stay relevant. Exactly. So... I think uh, I think my theory is that if Tommy Sells is the killer, that he's just a piece of shit right. asshole who stumbled upon their trailer and killed them. But then the question mark for me is why the different MOs for Keith and the rest of the family? Like, why was Keith killed at a separate location with a different method than the family? That's so, weird to me, if it was just like a, a spur-of-the-moment serial killer thing. I wonder, because... Maybe, I don't think it was Sells, to be honest. I think it was someone else, and I think he's just trying to take the credit for it because mm. he is sick, or was sick. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of have a theory that when murderers or serial killers do that, where they confess to a crime that they know they didn't commit, mm-hmm. and this is outside of those who are like in a state of... Um, where they're struggling with mental health and maybe they really believe it or whatnot. Yeah. But I think the vast majority of them, when they're lying, it's because, A, they just want attention. They want to be attached to a high-profile crime. They want their name to be down in infamy and all that crap. And, B, in my opinion, and I wonder if this is a a theory that's been investigated out there or is, like, part of a profile, but I almost feel like they do it because they get a – a thrill or a kick out of like knowing that they're confessing to a crime they didn't commit and allowing someone like them to continue doing what they're doing on the outside while they take the rap board inside. Like they almost feel like it's like a colleague, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to let that guy or that girl off the hook, let them keep doing what they're doing. I'll take the rap for it. Ha ha ha. Right. And, you know. Right. Like, let. I'm already going to prison, so I might as well yeah, let like, that person kind of. They just like the and chaos. And plus, it's like such you know? an ego thing, yeah. like narcissism of, like, I did all of these things. Yeah. And I'm so brilliant and amazing kind of bullshit. Exactly. So I, I kind of feel like he didn't do <sighs> it at all, and he just is is kind of just trying to latch onto it. Yeah. That could easily be. And I feel like they were probably targeted because they were, quote unquote, easy targets because she's pregnant the kid is young and they're just regular folks regular people out there i wonder if the reason the mo is different for him than the rest of the family i wonder if he was running like escaping the scene Mm -hmm. of what was happening at the house and was chased and then killed in you know a different manner because it was in the moment like it wasn't he was planned to be killed in the trailer, too. Maybe he came upon the scene and started leaving. Hmm. He already had them hogtied and, or maybe killed already and said, oh, no, 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 there's someone else. I, I got to go get them and then chased him out and, you know, I don't know. That could be. But he was um, – Keith was inside of his car because it sounds like um, the blood that was inside of the car was – uh, whoever hel- had a gun on him shot him, like, in the cheek inside of the car and then, like, got him oh, out. Oh, from the inside of the car. Correct, yes. And then uh, got him outside, mutilated, and killed him. Well, maybe it was, like, so, Keith was escaping. The guy, like, yeah. cornered him, maybe got his car in front of him. Maybe he didn't act alone. Maybe there was someone else. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it yeah. could have been a two-person job, too, where the two people were doing totally. something in the house. The car pulls up. And realizes something's wrong, something's going on, starts to leave. One guy leaves with the gun, who maybe he used to keep the other victims like from doing anything while they terrorize them, unfortunately. And then this guy chases him down, corners him, uh, says, like, I have a gun, let me in the car. And, you know, kills him there yeah. and just leaves him there. Or, like, drives him, for, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well... <sighs> Well done. That was thank you. Horrendous. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, if uh, Joanne Dardine emails us back and uh, wants to talk, maybe we'll get to fly down to Ena, Illinois, and start our own investigative journalism podcast. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and maybe we'll actually be able to help solve it. Yeah, that would be amazing. Wow. 
Alright everybody, I know your phones are either in your hands or within your reach, let's be honest. So, pick it on up, head over to whatever podcast app that you're using, and subscribe. And while you're there, rate and review us because that helps people find our show. That's right. And most people try a podcast because a friend recommends it. So if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. And we love connecting with our listeners. So feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. Don't forget to check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com, where you will find the link to our Patreon, which has great perks. We cover Law & Order SVU episodes and the true crimes inspired by those, or that inspired those episodes. And you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Yes. And a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thanks for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.